Everyday grocery store items like bananas, chocolate, coffee, these are global commodities. They pass through a lot of people's hands on their way from the fields to your grocery cart. This is the stories behind our food podcast, the podcast where expert guests share insider knowledge about every step along the process. I'm Danielle Robido. And I'm Kate Chess. And we're your hosts. Sexual violence as a tactic of war is a huge problem worldwide. We're here today to talk about the Democratic Republic of Congo. Maybe you heard recently that Dr. Dennis McQuaige is the co-recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize for his work with the Pansy Hospital and survivors of sexual violence. We're here today with Beth Ann Casperson, the Coffee Quality Control Manager at Equal Exchange and co-founder of the Congo Coffee Project. She'll be giving an important background on the political situation in the DRC and steps that you can take as an individual to make a difference. Hi, everyone. Great to be here. Beth Ann, can you give us a just like a brief landscape of the history and overview of this problem? The problem we're working to address is sexual violence in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, the DRC, um, which it's known as, um, is the second largest country in Central Africa. And it's located in an area known as the Great Lakes region. It's surrounded by nine countries, and it occupies this great expanse of land and resources. So there are countries like Rwanda, Central Africa, African Republic, Uganda, all around the DRC. And there are more than 78 million people. It's rich in biodiversity. It has these vast natural resources. But there's this history that's really important to understand. First, you need to understand that the Belgians colonized the DR Congo in the, in the 1880s. And in 1885, King Leopold II declared it his private property, and he named it the Congo Free State. This is where colonization begins, bringing with it, unfortunately, death and disease. And in the 1900s, it became the Belgian Congo. You'll see a variety of name changes throughout the history. And during this period of Belgian rule, the Belgians are just extracting resources and there's very little development. Um, and it really wasn't until 1960 that they achieved independence. Um, the first president, um, this might be getting down into the details, but it's un important to understand about the presidents as well, um, was Joseph Kasabubu. However, conflict arose over the administration of the territory, which became known as the Congo Crisis. And so he was ousted. The Republic of, and it's also known now as the Republic of Congo. So here we go through our name changes. <laughs> through this, you see another leader rise and take power through a coup. And he's called Mobutu Sisi Seko. And he was a militator, military dictator. Um, and this is going on from 1965 to 1997. At this point in 1970, the country again is renamed to Zaire. So again, we're seeing this, this theme. What we know is that there's conflict, warring groups, and continual fighting for land and resources, and this persists throughout the history of Congo. Mobutu begins to lose power in the 1990s, and then we see in 1994 the Rwandan genocide. This is a war between two ethnic groups, and uh, Rwanda is right again on the border of DRC, and it's the Tutsis and the Hutus, and this unfortunate event claimed more than 800,000 lives in a very short period of time, in 100 days, they say. 
So there's a lot of warring happening. There are, there's this political strife. Um, and then the Congo goes into its first war. It's called the First Congo War. And this is in 1996, where there's a foreign invasion of Zaire that is led by Rwanda. And that replaces President Mobutu with the rebel leader, Laurent Desiree Kabila. And he is the first Kabila. There is another Kabila that comes along a little later in our story. Mobutu flees and Kabila becomes president. Unfortunately, his reign is very short um, because there are tensions between President Kabila and the Rwandan and Tutsi presidents in the country. And this led to, unfortunately, the Second Congo War. And that was from 1998 to 2003. This war involved all of the neighboring countries, so all nine countries and around 20 armed groups. And ultimately, it resulted in the deaths of what is estimated to be 5.4 million people. Let me repeat that, wow. 5.4 million people. So what happens next? President Kabila was assassinated by one of his bodyguards in 2001, and then he was succeeded. Some people say eight days, some people say 10 days later by his son, Joseph Kabila. Mm -hmm. And so this happens and he's not officially president or becomes elected as president until 2006, of which he is then reelected in 2011. And so you have this series of presidents and rulers and power. And this president that is in power right now, Joseph Kabila, um, he has been in the president. They were supposed to have elections in 2016. Here we are in December of 2018. They still have not had elections. Um, and there's definitely political instability surrounding this. Um, yeah, so the, the DRC is this large country with what I would call small pockets of development. So I'm, I'll give a little bit of the, the, the difficult sides of the DRC, but also some of the more um, positive. Um, but first, you need to understand there's overall very poor infrastructure. There are no roads in, from, from in the interior of the country. Um, people are out in the streets protesting. They want a new a new president. They want a new election cycle. There's distrust of the government right now. And then you have denial by the government that people are actually protesting and that people actually have been harmed over, over many, over the last two years in particular. Meanwhile, you have these armed groups and I'm building up to why sexual violence is actually um, such an issue. Yeah. And these armed groups are now being labeled as terrorists by the DRC government, and they're fighting for land, arms, and precious resources. And there are a couple of precious resources that everyone needs to understand in particular. They're tantalum, tin, tungsten, and gold. And they are all found in things that you'll be very familiar with, your laptop and yeah. your cell phone. Yeah. So all these minerals are used, again, to make cell phones and laptops, but they, the, the mines are what the military groups want to control. Um, and so this is where sexual violence comes in. The groups perpetuate violence by, through sexual assault, which is just a horrific practice where they rape women, children, and men of all ages. And this violence is really used as a tactic of war. It tears apart communities, destroys families, and it creates insecurity. And it's, it, I, when I say it's complex, it, it's really a wild understatement. Um, 
but sexual violence is really just persisting throughout DRC right now. And on top of all of this, you have an Ebola crisis, um, which is really, really difficult. It's not the first time it's happened. However, it's in a more populous area called Beni. um, And it's really, really sad to say that military groups have even attacked the health workers there. And there's a lot of insecurity. So it's difficult to uh, address just sexual violence when there are all these complex layers of what's happening with, you know, poor leadership, little economic development, a huge country with this wonderful mineral wealth and just little economic development. So these levels of sexual violence continue to persist and destroy families. And it's really to gain power over people and resources. Wow. Thanks for that really thorough um, background here. And then just to add something else to the pot, another complication. This is a podcast about food, uh, and we are a coffee company. What does coffee have to do with this? There are coffee farmers in the Congo. Uh, We source coffee from the Congo. Um, What does that have to do with women and other people who have survived sexual violence? And is there any overlap between these groups? Definitely. Uh, And thanks for asking. Sexual violence is this really... Uh, widespread issue throughout Congo, but it's really in other parts of the world as well. So we need to at least address that. Sure, yeah. Um, But it's rampant in Congo, again, using it as this tactic of war. So we work at the small farmer co-op in eastern Congo. It's on the shores of Lake Kivu, which also borders Rwanda. And a number of the women have been sexually assaulted. So, but historically, there hasn't been anywhere to go. So sexual assault has persisted for a long time. Um, And for people who live outside of larger areas like Goma or Bukavu in eastern Congo, there there hasn't been many places to go. However, in 1998, uh, Dr. Dennis McQuaige, a gynecologist, um, established the Pansy Hospital. And it was a hospital, the hospital has become very well known for treating um, survivors of sexually based violence. And over the years, Dr. McQuaige has treated thousands of people, thousands. It's really, uh, like I said, sad to say. And um, treating these survivors for sexual violence is a holistic process for them where they're treating people both physically and mentally um, through the Pansy Hospital. Uh, In terms of the overlap between where we buy our coffee, uh, Bukavu is pretty far away from as the town of Minova, which is where Sopakti is located, um, and many of the coffee farmers are in the adjoining communities. And so for years, we, we tried to figure out how, how to get the survivors from those communities some help, but it's really far away. Um, in 2014, maybe it was 2015, I don't remember exactly, uh, but the World Bank supported a project to build what they call one-stop centers in different communities. And these are really small clinics that are built in smaller towns in order to treat people that are affected by sexual, sexually based violence um, in that same holistic way, right, as, as the larger Pansy Hospital. And this is where some of the farmers of Sopakti live. They actually live in Bulanga. And so having a small clinic there has been a really important development um, on a lot of levels. I mean, but really the overlap is with one small farmer co-op I'm talking about that affects um, 
or is part of our coffee project. However, there are farmers throughout Congo and people are affected everywhere all over Congo. So it's not just farmers, it's children, teachers, and more. Um, and I think that the one-stop center that's been um, constructed in Bulanga has really helped to bring the farmers closer to the hospital, which I'll talk about, and I hope in a few minutes, um, and together to, with equal exchange in the same way. And I've been there to visit, and I've been there, and I've spent time with Dr. Buema um, and the general manager from Sopakti. Um, and so we're creating these connections. Yeah. So, Beth Ann, can you talk a little bit about what kind of inspired the creation of the Congo Coffee Project and what has been the evolution of this project through the years? It's a great story, actually, because, <clears throat> excuse me, I was in the Equal Exchange Cafe in Boston. And I was there with two, I'm a, a coffee cupper by trade, and I was there with two coffee cuppers from Columbia. And I ran into Jonathan Rosenthal, who's one of the founders of Equal Exchange. And he said, you know, Pan, have you ever, do you, have you ever heard of Pansy Foundation? And I said, no, who's that? And he said, you know, they're a really interesting organization. They're doing advocacy work and in, in Congo, in Democratic Republic of Congo. And they're looking for a product to tell their story um, with, so a private label product, and to raise money for their programs. Wow. And it was really sort of, it just happened. Yeah. And serendipitous. Serendipitous. And at the time, I didn't know anything about DRC. I've spent time in East Africa in my coffee work, and um, mostly in Uganda, but also in Ethiopia. But I didn't know a lot about DRC. I didn't know a lot about the issues around sexual violence um, or the Pansy Hospital. And so I, over time, as, as I started to learn more and more, I was, gosh, we've got to do something. How internation will this work? Um, we've never done this sort of thing before. And so I was very lucky because I spent a lot of time with Tara Herman, who was a representative for Pansy, over many months to develop a coffee product. Um, we weren't even buying coffee from the Congo at the time. So it's like, well, how can we actually make that connection? So I don't... In my mind, I was working to make a product, but it was almost going a little backwards because I really wanted to figure out how to impact the lives of the coffee farmers on the ground. So I uh, reached out to one of my friends, Richard Hyde, formerly of Twin Trading in the UK, and asked him and talked to him. And he said, you know, mm -hmm. I, I know a group that you should contact and we should, we should connect you. Um, and so over the years, we've gotten to know the farmers and support them with technical assistance. Um, as I mentioned, I'm a cupper by trade. And so I spent some time working with their team to find a cupper to help them to build their quality. Um, and over time, I would say pretty quickly, we introduced a product, which inevitably came the, became the Congo Coffee Project. Um, it was the first organic coffee in the U.S., which I'm, uh, that was fair trade. Um, wow. And I'm really proud of it. It has a beautiful design. Um, our design team did it. Um, props to them. Um, but I think the, the whole point of the product was to tell the story, right? Yeah. What is the yeah. story? Raise awareness and have impact. So we have impact um, on the farmers by buying coffee um, at fair trade prices, um, at higher than fair trade prices, that's for sure. Um, and then in addition to that, we are supporting the Pansy Foundation. So for every bag that we sell, it uh, $1 goes into a fund. And at the end of the year, we collect all of the money 
um, or count all the money, I should say. And then we send a check to Pansy. And I'm proud to say that we've raised more than $80,000 with this uh, project um, since wow. inception, which was in 2011. So I feel like the evolution is continuing. Um, I don't think it's done. I think that we've got a lot of work still to do. Yeah, absolutely. Always more work to do. Can you can you tell us um, a personal story that you have with maybe one of the women that kind of highlights the collaboration of Equal Exchange and the Pansy Project? Definitely. I think that there's there are many faces that come to mind. There's this woman, Janet, who works in the nursery school um, that just really, every time I see her, she just has a big smile on her face, and she just has this dramatic impact on me in my life. But the woman I think I'd like to highlight is known as Mama Zawadi. Um, and Mama Zawadi is the director for the Mason Dorcas Aftercare Center. And she is, um, this is a place where people go, survivors go to the aftercare center to heal and to rest. Mm -hmm. They receive counseling. Um, and is this part of the Ponzi Hospital? This is part of the Ponzi, Ponzi Hospital, yes. Um, but she's just this gentle soul with a giant heart. Yeah. And I just connected with her immediately. Um, you know, she's the mother of eight. She also wow. happens, I know, the mother of eight, but also she's the sister of Dr. Dennis McQuaige, the founder of Pansy. Um, and she's a widow. She lost her husband a few years ago, which hit her pretty hard. But she told me, I need to be here. I need to be here for the women. Wow. Uh, the aftercare center itself is about 300 beds, um, and, but you can see this lot when you walk around. It's a pretty overwhelming experience. Of course, I'm not in in each of the the rooms, but um, being there my first time was really overwhelming. And Mama Zawadi was just very supportive and very direct. You know, I think yeah. people sort of walk on eggshells when they talk about sexual violence or, oh yeah. gosh, you know, how do you explain it? And uh, she's just direct and said, you know, this woman was raped. This woman has AIDS. This child that is four years old was raped. Wow. And it was just really overwhelming. But I feel like she was really supportive for me too um, because she has this calming presence really yeah. calming presence, which you can see as being really important. The first time I went, uh, I had this idea because um, Leanne Roos from, from Pansy Foundation USA uh, had told me a little bit about the hospital. And so I decided I was going to bring a big bag, a big suitcase of clothing for, <laughs> for the kids. Yeah. Um, and so I collected all of my son's things that were too small and went and got some things for my nephew. And I wasn't quite sure how it would be received. You know, here, here comes this person that's never been here with a, a bag of clothes. And I was received with song and dance. And it was really <laughs> another piece of being overwhelmed during that same day. And so every year when I go, Beautiful. 
I always bring a bag of clothes and that bag of clothes started as a small suitcase and now it's this giant suitcase that's called the wheelie beast. (laughs) (laughs) And I shove as much of it in there. The weight is the problem. Um, But it's always, it makes me feel so happy to pass along small things that, um, that, that while they can get clothes there, they can get clothes there, but I'm passing along something that is meaningful to me. And she said, if everyone in the world could have as big of big a, of a heart as you do, then we wouldn't have the same level of problems. And that stuck with me. So she is very, very special to me. Wow. She sounds so special. Thanks for telling us that story. That's, that's really nice. Can, can you talk specifically about maybe one of the women who has kind of benefited from this project in particular with the Congo Coffee Project? It's hard to sort of pinpoint one woman. You know, survivors are there for a a short period of time, um, and then they move on. So usually I don't see the same faces, which I consider a blessing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But I do see the same staff, like Mama Zawadi. Yeah. But when we first started the project, all of our funding was going toward the Mason Dorcas Aftercare Center. Mm -hmm. And so specifically to support vocational training. So I think that's the place where I've seen this impact. The center, you know, again, is this healing place. It's an important refuge for survivors. But one really important thing that they try to do is give people the skills so that once they leave... Um, or some type of a trade, so that when they leave, they can use it. Um, So that might be sewing, that might be weaving, um, and this is all happening along with counseling and medical services. Um, And so those are are important things to to leave with. Um, It's a really holistic approach, taking into account the physical and the mental, which I think I really appreciate. So I think it was probably my second or third visit. I saw these really gorgeous plastic woven bags and I bought one and I was thinking, how can I, how can I get these to the United States? Could I sell them? Yeah. What if we could design them and sell them? What if we, there was an outlet. And so this became the Congo coffee bag, um, And it's this beautiful woven bag that's teal, black, and white. And they can be used as shopping bags, as baskets. Mm -hmm. And so what I love about this program is that every bag is, there's a woman earns $10. $5 of that is paid to her outright. $5 is kept um, as part of a savings account. So that when the woman leaves, she has a little pile of money. Um, to leave with, so a savings. And I love that um, it is just a really, um, you know that someone was using that as healing, they were learning through weaving, and then ultimately they sold it into the market. So for all those people out there that have bought one, um, now you know a little bit more about the story. Yeah, so that's that's something that I feel like has had really good impact Um, And in a lot of ways, our funding has evolved as well. So in years past, we've used that to support vocational training, and we've decided um, we want to create a connection between the Bulanga Clinic and where the funding goes now. So in 2016, we embarked on a new journey 
where we decided now this is after consultation with the clinic. This is not my idea. This is what the clinic wanted is um, to build water tanks. Yeah. Because the clinic is small. This one-stop center is a, it's a tiny clinic. It doesn't yeah. have the, the services that it probably needs or the, the money to support it. So knowing that the farmers are in the same community and they need access to water, the idea was to, be, to take the money and use it to build a water tank. And they did that, and I was able to see that. Um, and you can see pictures on our website um, if you're interested. So, And we're working on that. I feel like that's evolving and how it impacts each women, woman. The bag project continues, and I feel like that will continue to impact women um, in very specific ways. Thanks. Thanks, Bethan. I feel like I can, I can really feel from you that you are really passionate about this work. Can you talk a little bit about what this means to you on a personal level? Without crying, I'll try. <laughs> um, it's okay. It's, it's part of I'm it. a crier. Uh, it Me too. Means... <laughs> Not a shocker <clears throat> to you. You guys can't see this, but we're handing out tissues no. here in the studio. <laughs> uh, it means so much to me. You know, I've traveled to DRC to work with coffee farmers, uh, visit Pansy Hospital, visit the clinic in Bulanga. And I don't think I quite understood the experience it would give me. I've traveled throughout the world in, in my work and training and working with roasters and cuppers and quality training. But this has had a different level of impact um, where you see human suffering, um, but hope at the same time. And I feel like there's, uh, if we have to have hope, we, you always have to have hope and you always have to fight for yeah. what is right. And this is a very deep and meaningful. This has been professionally a very, very meaningful and uh, personally very meaningful project for me. That's wonderful. And we really appreciate you doing this interview with us. I um, had done a webinar with Beth Ann and that was kind of how this idea came about. And I just wanted to keep getting the word out about this project. I think it's a really important project that Equal Exchange is involved in. Um, how can how can some of the folks listening beyond this podcast, right? What What are some action steps that they can take and some good resources that folks can kind of stay connected to this story? Well, you should get out your pen and paper. <laughs> or start <laughs> Write that one down. <laughs> Write these down. Um, well, let's just start with uh, a blog piece that I just wrote. Um, and it's about our work. And there's this, I'm not sure how many of you have heard, but in October, we received news that Dr. McQuaige, the founder of Pansy, is the co-recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize, which is Wonderful. Yes. <laughs> round of applause yeah. on so many levels. Well-deserved, um, yeah. Well-deserved. Um, he's been up for the Nobel Peace Prize in years past, so for him to, to receive this is a, a very high honor um, and well, well-deserved. Um, when I learned the news, um, I wasn't even expecting it. My husband was on a plane, and he sent me a text and said, did you hear the news that he won? The, and I couldn't even believe it. I literally started crying because, <laughs> oh, again, wow. I am a crier. <laughs> but I, I started to cry because I was so happy, so happy for him, for the survivors yeah. that have suffered, for the survivors that have persevered, for all the support for everyone out there listening right now, 
for everyone at Equal Exchange and just really of him for bringing and talking about sexual violence on the, the international stage for so long and having that acknowledgement, I think, is enormous. Um, and it's especially important right now given the political situation. You know, that there's a, a threat of not having free or fair elections on December 23rd of the, you know, this month. And mm -hmm. I think that that is a threat um, out there. And so one of my asks for you would be to say, let's get fair and free elections happening. There are no yeah. excuses as to why they haven't happened for two years. The excuses put out by the government are just rubbish. It's ridiculous. And they don't actually have any traction. And so we really need to put pressure there. Um, I'd encourage you to learn more about DRC. So not mm -hmm. just um, at Equal Exchange and the Congo Coffee Project and Pansy and our work, um, but there are other fantastic groups out there doing work. Um, there's the Enough Project, there's Steer Forward, there are others, um, and those are on our website too. So buy the coffee. Um, <laughs> it is a plug, but I think it's an important plug because you're supporting our work. And coffee does help to build the economy. So when we're talking about this poor infrastructure um, mm -hmm. and these warring factions and this really complex political landscape, I think that this is something you can do, is to buy a bag of coffee or buy a bag of coffee and give it to someone else. Um, and then the last thing, and there might be more things I think of when I get off of this podcast, <laughs> um, is to support our Commit Change campaign. We just launched it to raise additional money for the Bulanga Clinic. Uh, our idea is that we have built these small tank water tanks, but we need to do so much more mm -hmm. and it's expensive, but we really want to put solar panels on the clinic. We want to have renewable energy options and we want to have consistent clean water that's available throughout the community and to really be a model of what a great clinic can be. So I think that those are a few of the things you could do. Uh, so if you forgot all of that and didn't write it down. We've got links that we'll yeah. put right in the episode of this podcast. If you go to the podcast homepage, you'll be able to find a place where you can uh, take action on all of these suggested steps. I wanted to ask about Dr. Mukwege. It's so exciting. The prize giving is in December. Uh, so, and not only, I'm sure it's gratifying for him to have his work recognized, but this brings the issue to a wider international audience. Um, have you met Dr. Mukwege, Bethann? Have you, have you, can you talk about your interactions with him? It's amazing. Every time I'm in DRC, he's not. <laughs> <laughs> and then he comes to the States and I'm not. I travel a lot for work. Um, so we've had very little time to connect. And I think I, I'm sort of an ambassador and a champion on not just his behalf, but on the behalf of Pansy Foundation USA, um, Mama Zawadi. So I have not had a lot of interaction with him, um, but he's very proud of the Congo Coffee Project. I know that. Um, and uh, that, so my connection, my physical connections have not been, uh, there have not been so many. Um, but I, again, I feel like this is so powerful. What he's received in the Nobel Peace Prize alone and putting this work on the international stage. When he received word, he was in surgery because he's still an active surgeon. He's not just a, he, he does go out and do a lot of speaking um, all over the world to talk about sexual violence and the issues in DRC. So he is not afraid to talk about the other issues. 
So this is a, another level of excitement and, and honor that I think that will definitely, I, I hope will bear more fruit where people are listening. Um, so my, my interactions are limited, but I, I think we should all feel very proud of the work that he does. Yeah, and thanks for telling his story. I have seen a picture of the two of you together, so I know it's not a Batman <laughs> Bruce Wayne situation. <laughs> yes, um. yes. I went to uh, the Women for Women International dinner in New York City a few years ago because we had not been able to connect and was able to meet him for uh, not very long. Um, it's really hard to get him by himself. He's a, mm -hmm. <laughs> he's a very busy guy, so and Absolutely. he will be even more busy now. So That's good news, yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Bethann. Um, I, I would just say that, you know, what really had got to my heartstrings was, you know, after this webinar that we did with Beth Ann, just the scale of this problem, the systemic nature of it, and just the stories of the women and the brutality that is experienced. I think that, you know, I would really encourage listeners out there to go learn more about this story and the human stories behind it, because there is no way that you cannot be moved by it. So thank, thank you so much, Beth Ann, for all the work that you do. It's, it's really, really important work, and um, we really appreciate you telling the story. Thank you. It is a pleasure to be here and tell the story. So tell your friends to listen <laughs> in on this. Definitely. Tell all your friends about the <laughs> Equal Exchange Podcast. <laughs> Subscribe. Share the episode. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to The Stories Behind Our Food, a podcast by Equal Exchange, Inc., a worker-owned cooperative. Love this episode? Please subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Be sure to visit equalexchange.coop to join the conversation, purchase products, and learn more about small-scale farmers and the global supply chain. This episode was produced by Equal Exchange with hosts Kate Chess and Danielle Robideau. Sound engineering provided by Gary Goodman. Join us next time for another edition of The Stories Behind Our Food.